So this episode is going to discuss the introduction to personality and then do a deep dive into the psychodynamic theory explaining personality. So when we think about personality, I want you to think of it kind of along the lines of this um, list, the characteristics or the characteristic pattern of a person's thinking, feeling, and acting or behavior. So a lot of different things are going to be going on within one's personality. And it is pretty generally accepted that our personalities are formed in early childhood. But the big debate always comes down to, is it more nature, meaning does our genetics determine our behavior? In other words, is it fixed? Or is uh, is our personality more influenced through nurture, meaning our environment, our upbringing, um, combining with other experiences that determine our behavior, meaning that it can change and be altered and shift. Overall approaches to personality, it really depends. When we talk about the behaviorists in regards to understanding personality, they're going to fall on the nurture spectrum of the nature-nurture debate, whereas the trait theorists, which we'll get to in the future, really falls onto the nature part of that nature-nurture debate in terms of discussing personality. Um, Psychodynamic would also fall more to that nature side, whereas the cognitive and humanist perspectives are pretty in the middle. Uh, The humanists do lean more towards environmental factors, but those cognitive um, psychologists studying personality would fall very in the middle. So when we think about, is it more nature? Is it more nurture? It really depends on the approach and the perspective that we're studying when looking at personality. Before we dive into that psychodynamic perspective theory, I want us to review heritability. Um, And we talked about heritability, you actually read about it um, back in our biology of psychology unit. So that was unit two. It's a really long time ago, but now is a really good point to review. Well, what is this big word? Um, I don't want you to think of heritability as something that is inherited. I know that people may fall to saying that, but that is incorrect. When we think about heritability, sometimes it's easier to look at it from what it is not before defining what heritability is. So And we're gonna look at heritability in terms of a personality lens. So heritability does not indicate what proportion of a trait within our personality is determined by nature or nurture. It also does not reflect the extent to which traits are passed down from parents to children. So it's not something that is inherited. It's not that percent chance of, well, how likely are we going to inherit blue eyes or brown eyes or hand in this or something like that. It is not that. What it is, is it indicates the variability or differences in the trait in a population or a group. So it's all about looking at a group that is either due to genetic differences among people. And It's often estimated from studies of identical twins, and that makes sense because twins share the same DNA, so it's really good to kind of look at, well, to what extent is something, you know, able to be explained through genetics or an environmental influence? So 
In other words, what heritability is, is a measurement of how much differences or variations in people's DNA that can explain the differences or variations in their traits. Um, if it falls on zero, remember it's a measurement, zero would mean genetics explains absolutely nothing about the trait, all the way up to one, <coughs> which would be genetics explains everything about the trait. So a lot of times in a multiple choice test, it'll ask, what has the higher heritability? And when we think of the higher heritability, it would fall on that measurement of get going closer to one and being that genetics explains everything about the trait, meaning that differences in a group would, for a specific trait or personality type or whatever, would solely be based on one's genetics, more, um, more so than the environment, if it's a higher heritability. Um, what's interesting is like extroversion, conscientiousness, a lot of these personality traits um, <coughs> have higher heritabilities, meaning that genetics explains the differences in a group um, or the variations in a group in terms of conscientiousness, handedness, or conscientiousness, extroversion, sorry, compared to longevity, which would be how long you live, or even handedness, that has a very low heritability, meaning that genetics doesn't explain as much do, um, when there are differences in a population or group in terms of handedness or how old they'll live, which is kind of interesting. Um, so when we think, you know, bottom line, personality, nature, and nurture, it's complicated. So we will talk about how our nature does influence our personality in terms of different theories. Like gene number one will say, you're gonna be conscientious. And gene number two would say, you know what? You're gonna be very open to new ideas. Um, and that just goes on and on. But we'll also take a look at nurture and environmental influences like family, the parenting style, birth order even, one of the neo-Freudian studies that, um, the stability within your life, peer influences, cultural influences, and also historical context. Um, <coughs> we'll also take a look at personality tests. That'll kind of how we close out this whole unit. Um, we'll take our time looking at personality. Uh, the big thing in looking at these personality tests, are they all reliable? Are they all valid? Some personality tests that we'll come to look at aren't reliable and therefore not valid. Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to look at it. And we'll take a look at like psychotherapy, ink block tests, um, check marks, dream analysis, all that good stuff, and other factor analysis that is used within measuring personality. All right, I'm gonna take a pause and then we'll dive into the psychodynamic perspective. All right, so when we think of personality in terms of the psychodynamic theory or psychodynamic um, perspective, I want you to automatically think about Freud and unconscious desires. Because when we talked about this perspective, the psychodynamic theory, which could also be referred to as the psychoanalytic theory, um, would be all about what's deeply kind of rooted in our unconscious minds, things that we're not actually consciously aware of, but it manifests in specific behaviors. And now we're going to talk about personality. Um, with Freud, he's actually, you know, when we think about the early, early psychodynamic theory, they will use psychoanalysis. But today, you know, the psychodynamic theory is just a more nuanced way, refined way of diving into the unconscious mind. Um, 
And so Freud is, it begins in 1897, so at the turn of the 20th century um, in Vienna, Austria, and a lot of other psychodynamic theorists study with him. Um, and what Freud comes up with is that people are born with a specific psychic energy. Freud calls that a libido, and that must be redirected during social development. So we're born with something, but it's redirected and, you know, will determine how our social development really happens. Um, and what he does say is that we have specific impulses, aggressive impulses and sexual impulses, and they're fighting to come out. However, we consciously must restrain them. So it's this weird balance between aggressive and sexual impulses and desires that are trying to fight to come out, you know, come out of our unconscious mind, but we're continuously restraining them. Um, and when we think about Freud, you know, a lot of what he studies came up with with his theory is discounted you know we're not looking at his theory and saying yes we believe in everything there are some empirical issues they're quite subjective he studies mostly middle-aged white women and so when we think about that perspective is that a perfect world view of how people are and we can easily say not at all um, and that, you know, goes into his very limited case study population. He only really uses case studies to come up with these theories. He does not study children, which is interesting because everything that we're going to talk about today involves childhood development within their personalities. And he does have a quite negative view of women. Think about it. The times were very different back then, but, you know, that doesn't let us say, oh, yeah, he's great. You know, we, we should be able to critique that, and it's important to be able to do that. Um, however, you know, the bottom line is psychology needed to start somewhere, which is what Freud did. Um, many will take what he studied and expand upon it, and that's where we'll get into the neo-Freudians in a bit. Also, a ton of like psychotherapy that's used today stems from how Freud talked with his patients. Um, he used a lot of talk therapy. He used something called free association, which seems a little silly because he just, you know, had his patient lay on a couch, you know, one of those longer couches. And when we think of, you know, early psychologists, I think a lot of us imagine that. But the big thing with free association with Freud was, well, tell me everything about this specific subject. And it just would be this free flow of ideas, thoughts, and Freud would try and, you know, talk with them in a non-judgmental way, which is quite fascinating because a lot of psychotherapy and talk therapy is relevant with, you know, the tools and strategies that Freud used. Doesn't mean that we believe all his theories and, you know, his conclusions with specific things, but a number of strategies that he use, used will be relevant in psychotherapy today. And we'll talk about therapy when we get to our clinical psych unit. But to get into, you know, what Freud actually studied, we need to first look at his development of our personality structure. So he's going to talk about <coughs> our personalities. Are an, they're an interaction of three key systems, our id, our ego, and our superego. And it's kind of this weird balance between the three. And how he came up with these, the system or the personality structure is, you know, studying this 
conflict between our unconscious motives and desires and continuously trying to socially restrain that, those desires. And we're consciously trying to resolve this conflict. So the very first one is the id. Um, the id is referred to as the pleasure principle. It's quite primal and our pleasure seeking portion of our personalities. It's almost all unconscious, if not 100% unconscious. It's all about things that we want and what we want whatever it is right now. It's all about immediate gratification. On the other end, we have our superego within our you know, personality structure. And the superego is the, quite the opposite of the id. It's our perfection principle. It's our conscience. Now, this doesn't mean that it is in our conscious mind. Some of it might be, but the majority of our superego is additionally in our unconscious mind. Um, but the whole thing with the superego is think of it as our moral compass, where we're using socialization and guilt to continuously restrain our id, which is that primal, you know, pleasure-seeking principle part of our personality. And then thirdly, we have our ego, and our ego is our reality principle. This is what is in our conscious mind. It's our, the conscious portion of our personality, according to Freud. And that ego is kind of that balance between the id and the superego, where the ego listens to our id, which is the, the pleasure-seeking part of our personality, and then the superego, which is our moral compass. Um, the ego functions on delayed gratification, and I like to think of the ego as like a referee. Now, <clears throat> although you can't really see this if you're listening to it, I definitely recommend reviewing these slides and taking a look at the iceberg regarding, you know, Freud and our personality because the iceberg is a pretty good visual looking at, well, what parts of our personality are hidden, which would be below the water, um, and then which ones are seen. And a lot of our personality just looking at the iceberg, according to Freud, is quite hidden. Um, when we think about the three systems, our id, our ego, and superego, a healthy person has a balance amongst all three, where no single system is dominant. It's, you know, you have a good balance. All right, so the big thing with Freud is, well, how do we develop our personality? And he says, you know, it happens over time. And we progress through five distinct stages where a specific conflict needs to be resolved in each stage. A stage, sorry. If it resolves normally, our development proceeds within our personality. And if the conflict is not resolved well, there could be some fixation that could occur and last into adulthood, whether we're super uptight, um, we're not thoughtful, we're not conscientious, all those different things. Um, I don't want you getting this confused with Eric Erickson's psychosocial um, uh, conflicts, they're not that. Um, Freud is quite different than Eric Erickson. So what he studies within these um, stages, we call them the psychosexual stages. Um, and within each stage, there is an erogenous zone, which is a pleasure-sensitive area of the body. Um, when we think about 
<laughs> you know, going through these psychosexual stages, a, a big focus will be our id, you know, that pleasure-seeking part of our personality, according to Freud, where the focus of our id within each stage is to gain pleasure from that area within most of these stages. There is one stage in particular where that kind of goes into hiding. Um, we have five different zones, and those zones, those erogenous zones, shift as we get older, and I will identify them as I go through them. It will be helpful to look through your notes with this um, as I go through them. So the very first stage is the oral stage. It happens from zero to about 18 months, so a year and a half. When we think of what's going on here, I mean, think of infants. They're putting absolutely everything in their mouths at this time. You're always having to, you know, take the toy out, take their thumb out, all that kind of stuff. Um, and what's going on within this oral stage is that infants are taking pleasure from oral stimulation, like sucking and chewing. Therefore, those erogenous zones, those pleasure-seeking zones that the id is really focusing its attention to will be the mouth or even the lips. Um, if there's a particular fixation within the oral stage, meaning that you're not overcoming this pleasure-seeking um, uh, conflict, sorry, that it could be caused by overfeeding or even underfeeding the infant and results in one's personality could be <coughs> they like to talk, they're super talkative, they like to eat a lot, chew gum, or even smoke. Again, this is Freud's theory. A lot of this is discounted, so keep that in mind. Stage two is the anal stage. It happens from 18 months to about three years old. And think of potty training during this stage where children are taking pleasure in learning to control their bowel movements. Therefore, that erogenous zone that the id is really focusing its attention to is the anal region. Um, if during this stage, the, the child is learning how to deal with delayed versus instant gratification, meaning can that child go to the bathroom every single moment that the child needs to go to the bathroom? Or are they able to hold it and wait and go at an appropriate time? Are they wetting the bed? Are they, you know, asking to use the restroom when they're, I don't know, I guess they're not necessarily asking to do that when they're super young, but if there are issues within this stage that can lead to, you know, un being unable to delay one's gratification um, within specific things. They could also experience control issues, um, so they could be super uptight or super relaxed. It really depends. You may have heard the word anal retentive, and that does kind of stem from looking at the anal stage. The next one is the phallic stage. So that's from three to six years old. Um, what's going on here is that children begin seeking genital stimulation by beginning sexual identification as being male or female. This does exist on the binary. Think of, you know, the year this is early 1900s um, by observing their parents. The erogenous zones during the phallic stage <coughs> will be the genitals. Um, the big focus here is that the child is coping with unconscious sexual feelings for the parent of the opposite sex. So inside the phallic stage, there are some complexes that can emerge depending on if you're male or female. <coughs> If you're looking at a son during the phallic stage, again, from three to six years old, that according to Freud, they can experience the Oedipus complex, which is where the son has some type of unconscious sexual feelings for their mother. 
they may then become quite jealous of the father and that leads to conflict or hate that's projected towards their father. Um, and so that leads into castration anxiety where the son fears that the father will discover his own lust for their mom and the father will punish the son by castrating him. So to overcome this conflict, the male begins to identify and mimic his father, hoping to gain, you know, favor so there is no castration. Think of it, you know, if you can't beat, beat them, join them. Um, and during this time within the phallic stage, according to Freud, this is kind of how the superego begins to develop. If we look at the other end <coughs> with the daughter, they could experience the Electra complex, which is actually not proposed by Freud. It's proposed by Carl Jung, who is a neo-Freudian. We'll get to him very soon. But this is just the opposite of the Oedipus complex, where the daughter has unconscious sexual feelings for their father, um, becomes quite jealous of mom, and that leads to conflict and hate that's projected towards mom. Um, <clears throat> they could also experience penis envy, where the daughter discovers the difference between males and females, feels quite deprived because they don't have a penis, their genitals look different, um, and that manifests itself as a desire to have a child. Going further, we have the latency stage. So this is six years old to kind of the onset of puberty. Um, the erogenous zone still is the genitals within the latency stage, but what's going on is our fixations and unconscious sexual feelings even uh, kind of get go, go into hiding. They remain hidden. Um, during the latency stage, um, we could experience feelings of guilt or even shame about sex, and then our thoughts and interests in sex decrease. And then lastly, we have the genital stage, and that's from puberty onward. The erogenous zone continues to be the genitals. Um, the Oedipal and Electra conflicts will now reappear, reemerge, resurface even. Um, however, we're able to overcome these conflicts because we're now looking beyond our parents. We're looking, you know, for a potential mate. And that sexual pleasure now comes from actual sexual behavior during the genital stage. All right, I'm gonna take a pause and then dive into the Neo-Freudians. All right, so this last bit will be about the Neo-Freudians, basically the new Freudians. <coughs> a lot of these people studied with Freud, but will take Freud's work and expand on what Freud started. Because like I said, a lot of, you know, he's using mostly case studies. Um, some of the empirical evidence that he'll use is disputed and we need to go further, push further, <coughs> start with what he created, but then do something else. Now, a number of these Neo-Freudians agree on a couple things. That childhood is very, very important for our personality formation. And much of our personality formation is, you know, coming about within our, that unconscious level. So not necessarily within our conscious mind. 
Now, social conflicts are now important, not just sexual conflicts. Freud will focus mostly on sexual conflicts, whereas the Neo-Freudians look beyond that. And Eric Erickson, although I'm not going to talk through all of what he studied, he actually is a Neo-Freudian. He will learn psychoanalysis, will study it, will actually study with Freud's daughter, um, Anna Freud. <coughs> who is a Neo-Freudian and will come up with those psychosocial um, conflicts that we learned about within our developmental unit. So even though we won't talk about him today, um, he's still within that Neo-Freudian realm. And he, a number of Neo-Freudians also look at peer influences. So the first one's Carl Jung. Um, I mentioned him earlier. He actually comes up with the electric conflicts, conflict, sorry. And when we think about Carl Jung, I want you to think of the buzzword, or it's really a term, the collective unconscious. So he's going to add the idea of the collective unconscious when studying personality formation, where within our collective unconscious is filled with archetypes. And that collective unconscious, think of it as this like shared inherited reservoir of human memory that traces our entire history. We all have that. It's a collective unconscious. And when we have that collective unconscious, we ha have specific descriptions of archetypes, you know, with specific um, descriptions of what is good, what is evil, what is a quote man like, what is a quote woman supposed to behave like and act like and personalities like. Those would be examples of archetypes um, within Jung's studies. And he goes further and, you know, develops a whole bunch of examples, which if you're curious, we can chat about them. I have some of those books, I took a personality psych class in college, um, and it gets pretty intense, but we just need to know basically what this is. And you study archetypes in your literature or English classes, I'm sure. Carl Jung <coughs> also kind of pushes further, like I said, and comes up with different aspects of our personality, and he uses the words persona, self, and shadow. When we think of that persona, it's our mask, our personality mask that we present to others. It's not necessarily our true self though. In other words, it's how we want to be seen, according to Carl Jung. Whereas our self is our true personality. And our self and persona can be very different. That persona is that mask that we show the world. Our self is our true personality. And then our shadow is the dark side of the personality. Carl Jung would, I would say it's very, very similar to Freud's id, where it's that pleasure-seeking principle within our personality. Moving forward, we have Alfred Adler. Um, <coughs> when we think of him, I want you to think of the inferiority complex. And so what Adler studies is those social tensions that occur within our personality development, and they're quite important for us to develop our personality. However, what he noticed is that we all kind of experience feelings of inferiority, where we're constantly striving for feelings of superiority, feelings of perfection, and that can lead us to constantly be comparing ourselves to others and feeling quite inferior. So we're constantly persisting to feel superior to to feel better, yet we're always not going to feel that way. 
Adler also studies um, birth order. You know, what would be typical personality traits of a firstborn, a middleborn, a lastborn, or even the only child. You don't need to memorize those specific traits, but, you know, he, he goes into intense detail with that if you're curious. And then we have Karen Horney. Um, he, she is a critic of Freud, where she's going to take Freud's study and be like, studies and be like, where are the women? Why are you leaving out women? Why are you forgetting that they're important too? Um, Freud didn't have a wonderful view towards women. He didn't necessarily respect them too much. And so Horney is going to take Freud's work and say, well, let's look at it from a different perspective. She's actually also going to study feminine psychiatry, and we'll get to psychiatry a little bit in clinical psych in the future. But the big thing with Horney is that she doesn't just look with our, uh, look into our nature. Um, she looks at environmental influences. Social situations and relationships are quite important in shaping our personalities. She also adds to womb envy um, in the phallic stage of psychosexual development, and that's what Freud came up with, um, and says, you know what, let's not just look at penis envy with what women could experience. What about men? Men could have womb envy where they're jealous of women because they themselves can't reproduce. All right, so the last bit of today will be defense mechanisms. And within defense mechanisms, a number of them came about from Freud, but a number of these Neo-Freudians will also come up with these defense mechanisms. You don't need to be able to differentiate, okay, which defense mechanism falls under Freud's, which one falls under Adler's or Jung's or whatever. You just need to be fairly comfortable with a number of these, and there are a lot. The good thing is a lot of these you hear um, in every day and the key part that I'm going to stress is how can you make it relevant to your life? Because we do experience these defense mechanisms and they're kind of, we can't really stop ourselves from doing them because according to the Freudians and Neo-Freudians, they're occurring on the unconscious level. Um, and the point, you know, why do we have these mechanisms? It, they protect us from feelings of anxiety anxiety. Um, the big thing with how they came up with the defense mechanisms was that Freud and the others needed to explain where the ego defends itself from the demands of our id and superego. So it's this weird tricky balance. And so I'm going to kind of go through <coughs> all of these. So the very first one is compensation. What's going on here is if one particular part of your life isn't going too well, you compensate by doing well in another part of your life. So this reminds me of different memes that I've seen where it's like only pick two and it's a balance between your love life, your work life, and I guess your social life. Um, so if you think about compensation, let's say work life is going horribly. You aren't doing what your boss wants, so you compensate by, you know, really delving deep and looking at a relationship or being really great to whoever your partner is. The next one is denial. And the denial, it's pretty self-explanatory if you know just what denial is. And it's refusing to admit that there's actually a problem. You're in denial. <coughs> the next one is displacement. 
where you're displacing your anger. You have frustration in one particular thing, so now you're going to take it out on something else. Um, let's say you're really upset from a sports practice, and so you take it out by yelling at your mom at dinner. That would be displacing that anger, when in reality, you're really just mad at whatever game or sports practice you had just had. The next one is identification with the aggressor or just simply identification where you are going to take on characteristics of people who mistreat us. And a lot of times you hear, you know, the person who was bullied now becomes the bully. That'd be an example of identification with the aggressor. Next, we have intellectualization. The big thing here is trying to be logical about situations when, you know what, sometimes situations aren't logical. They're in fact quite emotional and that's okay, but intellectualization will be this persistent need to try and make things appear logical. Projection, it is a little bit similar to displacement, but the big thing with projection is taking our own feelings and putting those feelings onto someone else. So let's say you're super angry. You could project those feelings of anger by feeling like, let's say you're having a conversation with your best friend and saying, well, why are you so mad at me? Why are you so angry all the time? When in reality, you yourself are the angry one. Um, you're projecting your feelings of anger and putting them on your best friend, which your best friend isn't angry. You are. Next is rationalization, where we are constantly justifying the things that we try to do. The good thing or the great way to remember this is you constantly make excuses. That's the reason why you can't do something or turn something in on time, or that's the reason why you um are nitpicking at everything you're you're continuously making excuses for yourself without kind of taking on the blame reaction formation uh you know what you're feeling is quite unacceptable so you display the opposite you're super sad so you kind of fake it and pretend that you're happy Next is regression. This is all reverting back. Think about acting younger than we are. Throwing a temper tantrum when you're a teenager would be an example of regression. Repression, on the other hand, is taking things and blocking them uh, out of that conscious mind, repressing them, hiding them. We've used that word repression when looking at the psychodynamic theory. And last but not least is sublimation, where you're re-channeling your frustrations, but in very socially acceptable ways. So I like to think of emotion-based coping here. You're super stressed out from school, so you go for a run. I imagine a lot of you do this, or some form of exercise, meditation, yoga, something like that. <coughs> Watching The Bachelor, for example, to just, you know, rechannel that frustration of school, work, all of that, and say, you know what, I need to take some time for myself. Like that lavender candle, I don't know, feeling those feelings of peace. And that's pretty much it. One thing that we will do in class is a practice with the defense mechanisms in an FRQ style um, format. So you have options of either working, working in a group or working on your own. I always think more minds are better than one. Um, so anyway, it's a good way to practice and make, it, make those uh, defense mechanisms make sense. And that covers our personality intro and psychodynamic theory of personality. Thank you for listening.